Tillin, a Welsh word for Celtic Harp. Welcome to Tillin Tales. This podcast meanders through storytelling and science with a background harp accompaniment. I'm your host, Sophia Matson. I act as a shop, an old English word spelled S-C-O-P, but pronounced like a retail shop. A shop tells stories while playing an instrument. On Tillin Tales, science and creativity are methods I combine to enchant those who look for more within the everyday realm we experience. As a harpist, I arrange my music to draw the listener in, but you may find yourself getting lost in the melody, and that's quite alright. You can always rewind to catch up on what you missed, or you can just let it pass with time. To learn more about this podcast's origins, you can listen to my welcome episode called Roots and Reveries. I produce these podcasts out of my passion for research and writing, but regardless, it's a lot of work. So I'm changing this podcast to being monthly instead of bi-weekly. I think that in the past few months, my listeners may have noticed that it has not been consistent or reliable for bi-weekly releasing, and I want to be a consistent and reliable podcaster and a consistent and reliable person, so I need to practice what I preach, and I think changing this podcast to being monthly will help me achieve a greater show. So stay tuned for a great show with this being monthly. I really at first thought I wanted to do like the full moon, a release on every full moon, but I might just behave like one of those normal people and release this podcast on every second Tuesday of the month or something like that. So, I mean, if it gets you excited, I might feel the excitement and just release this podcast on every full moon, which sounds kind of cool. Or I'll just do something a little more reliable and consistent, like the second Tuesday of every month, still deciding on how I feel and what really represents me, because this is my space. But I produce this for you. Like any good poetry, you know, it's written from the person's heart, but other people can understand and read it too. So if you enjoy this podcast, if this podcast brings you peace or an enlightenment or a laugh for whatever reason, please consider compensating me with the price of an oatmeal cappuccino on my Patreon at patreon.com slash I'm still working on gaining a few more patrons to engage in a casual and consistent discussion, um, share fascinating articles with, post any visual artwork, or give exclusive access to music that I will be releasing in the next few months. So I'm recording on Saturday. We'll see how that goes. It'll probably be great. And if you're not able to give, I would be eternally grateful if you'd kindly share the link to my episode with your friends and family who might enjoy today's content. So thank you in advance. This week, I came back from a trip to Orange County in California. I went with my mom, and as we were laying in bed the night before we were flying back home, our 6 a.m. flight got canceled. So we had to arrange to fly out of Palm Springs, which was like a two-hour drive from where we were, just to get a plane ride back to Milwaukee. And the Palm Springs airport 
is out of this world most of it is dusty and small but then like you get out of security and you come outside to this oasis and all the gates are named after old hollywood stars and it's a, it's an like an outdoor airport which is super bizarre to me but i forget that deserts like never have real weather and each gate is named after an old hollywood star and even the workers will act and like talk like in old hollywood star language not with like a accent but they'll just like be referring to the names all the time so we get out of our rental car and the rental car lady was like my name is olivia like olivia newton john and me and my mom are like okay and then another worker replied slay when i showed him my giant bag that he was checking at the air at the last minute so then he saw my middle name on on my tag and was like okay miss ellen miss ellen degeneres a slay and i was just like you know is it a slay to be compared to ellen degeneres who knows these days i took it i rolled with it it was a great experience. The Palm Springs Airport is just a trip, honestly. You just have to go to experience it just for the airport. Um, but then on the plane ride from Palm Springs, my mom and I had mistaken our flight seating arrangement when this man who had the window seat next to me insisted he take the window seat. Totally cool. I get it. Worth splitting me and my mom up for? Who knows? So my mom moved one row directly in front of me where she was supposed to sit. So that's all good. You know, we were sitting where we were supposed to sit. We didn't throw a fit about it. And I was in between two elderly looking folks. And one was that man who was obsessed with the window seat. The other was a woman wearing a bright red cardigan over her shoulders to layer her bright pink outfit. And I was impressed with this. I was impressed. Sure enough, this man proved his dire need for the window seat was valid. He proved he proved he was totally valid, totally good, with the millions of pictures and videos that he took during takeoff. So he would look out the window for two minutes and then sit back for 10 seconds and then look out the window again. I'm not exaggerating, but I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of this behavior either. I was actually happy that he, he needed the window seat that badly. But the problem with this man wasn't, like I said, it wasn't his constant photos and videos, or even the constant pulling down and pushing up the window shade. Um, the problem was his knees, the man spreading. I never had a full seat of room because as he would take pictures, he was spreading his legs to the maximum extent they could go on a plane. And then his arm would rest onto the edge of my seat when he took each photo. And lest I remind you, he took a photo every minute of the entire plane ride. So I was kinda crunched, you know, crunch in my little seat. And then the snacks came around and the lady next to me ordered a can of tomato juice that matched her cardigan. She continued to impress me. The tomato juice fumes following the opening snap of the can really gave me an intense craving for a Bloody Mary, I'm not gonna lie. And then she spoke to me. 
So what were you up to in Palm Springs? I went with my mom, who was getting a certification to hone her specialty in pelvic floor physical therapy, but I explained to her that I just shopped around and walked on the beach, and I returned the question. Apparently, she lives 20 minutes from Palm Springs up towards the mountains, and Palm Springs is one of the strangest places you will ever visit, besides the airport. It's a kind of nowhere land for nobody, an island of misfits, if you will. There's a huge gay population, not to say anything about the gay people being misfits now, but they certainly were considered back then. So a lot of gay people moved into this desert and then painted things pretty colors and brought art and nightlife to this desert city. And the woman stated how she must live in a place where the median temperature is around 90 degrees Fahrenheit at all times. So we laughed about how we are on opposite spectrums. Like, she is one end of the histogram measuring temperature preferences, and I'm the other. I love the snow. I love the cold. Um, And she loves the boiling heat. And she convinced her husband to move to Palm Springs from snowy Minnesota. So she actually brought up this histogram comparison. So I was like, okay, Miss Science, it's a statistical graph. And I passed her mini science test by laughing along about how I was on one part of the histogram and she's on the other. So I continued to be impressed with this woman and it distracted me from the man taking up space and messing with the window lighting the entire time. Turns out she loves art and culture in Palm Springs, but she's not an artist. She asked me what I do first. I replied that I wanted to get my PhD to research how people interact with plants and how we can more critically place them within indoor environments to minimize stress and draw attention to architectural or sustainable or educational features in an indoor environment. At this point, she totally confides in me. I have somehow, I have pressed some kind of button where she's like, ding, ding, ding. And she tells me that she works as an environmental conservationist, usually securing acreage to prevent it from being commercialized and build large stretches of protected desert land. And then we talk about plant intelligence, which is one of my favorite topics. And we talked about Darwin's theories on plant intelligence and carnivorous plants. She has traveled to the Galapagos on three separate occasions. So we had our laughs, our little chats, and right when it became tiresome, she hastily got up and used the airplane restroom. And I waited patiently in admiration of her sarcastic humor and grouchy expressions the entire time. I love it when old women are just like grouchy looking, but like hold a regular conversation the entire time. It's great. Makes me feel understood. Like I don't have to be smiling all the time. Anyway, she came back, and she promptly gave me her card. And then I immediately said, I actually have a podcast I'd love you to check out. And then she goes, oh, the real reason I gave you my card was so that you could stay at my house whenever you visit Palm Springs. And I totally forgot, you know, I'm in California where everyone's a podcaster. So that was a little embarrassing. But that embarrassment that usually eats me alive was washed over by the honor that she bestowed upon me giving me her card. I didn't need this woman to listen to my podcast. We already had a marvelous 
genuine conversation about conservation, plant and human interactions, the physics behind how outer space has a shape. She described to me this entire thing, which I already kind of knew, but she described it to me in impeccable detail. And I felt like she was cosmically placed next to me on this plane, not only to distract me from this man, but to remind me that I'm not the only endlessly curious person on this earth, and that being a fabulous looking woman and living in Palm Springs is not mutually exclusive from knowing theories on physics or evolution. Every time I brought up how I wanted to do this or that, but it seemed impossible, she threw up her hands in frustration and said, well, why not? And I was like, yes, why not? So anyways, you may have been hung up on the brief mention of my mom's class on pelvic floor. The scientific community is still catching up on the lack of research on female reproductive organs. Now, backed by theoretical and scientific methods, people like my mom have the ability to shift everything around manually so that people don't experience excruciating pain from their menstrual cycle, or have better control over their bodily functions when they're pregnant, or be able to fully recover after giving birth. I have regularly experienced menstrual cramp pain that had me seeing black splotches in the middle of my workday. And one day, I, I truly believe this will happen, hopefully in my lifetime, that there will be a time where menstrual pain is recognized and acknowledged to the point where we're allowed two to three paid days every month whether you're part-time or full-time, just dedicated to resting and recovering our bodies. Two to three days that you can just choose whenever it is in the month that you need it, you know? You realize, you know, something is happening. You always kind of have an idea of when your period's going to come. But, like, even just the morning, you're like, all right, this is my two days. All right, I won't be coming in for two to three days. Sickness happens all the time, and if we just take, you know, the preventative two to three days, we probably won't be getting that sick that often, you know? And they're paid, so you could go to work, but like, if you're getting paid for not going to work, why would you go to work? Anyways, that's what I think should happen. I think it maybe will happen. I'm just gonna keep manifesting it. But listen, my skin suit and organs allow me to trudge through every weather to get to work, to run, dance, stretch, lift, and hold heavy metal. Our bodies literally turn to mush if we don't use them. Mushy insides with a flappy skin suit. So how do you honestly suppose I continue being a productive member of society if I'm like a rotten mushy potato with thick wrinkled skin before I turn 50? No thanks, I want my two to three days to use or rest my body, please. Just focus on how I feel, because I am lost in this day to day. Working, though, constantly makes me want to be a mushy potato. Makes me feel like I, I don't have time or energy to use this mushy potato body, and I just need to lay down all the time. And teaching, man, hands down to all the full-time teachers. It's so draining. Like... A teacher may want to express themselves, but they can't because they have parents to worry about. Or they might want to work from home, but teaching children over Zoom is ridiculous. And um, you want to have productive adult 
conversations and honest conversations with other adults because you are an adult, but you're surrounded by children all the time. So then you start using children words and vocabulary. And when you work with tiny children with a small vocabulary and not much to contribute in terms of a response to your existential questions that you accidentally say in the middle of your teaching day, you just get lonely. And then you get confused and you do an entire podcast on what being a child and being an adult is and how punishment works in our society. And that's what happens when you're a teacher. So I come home and I clean off the slime of tiny hands and bodies and their smells on my clothing and my skin and attempt to drown the sound of tiny wanting voices from my head. And one of the things that helps me do so is first changing my clothes and sometimes showering, but then staring at my plants. So I have an apartment full of houseplants. We have a symbiotic relationship. I water them, I feed them, I clean them, and I give them light and humidity. And they respond with body language and art through their colors and shapes that they produce for me. Each variegated or differentially colored leaf of the painted lady philodendron shows me a new Picasso pink polygon, and I breathe for them, and they breathe for me. When I water my plants, I like to share their experience by listening to the water trickle down through their roots. Plant roots are highly specialized organs that follow the sound of waves through traveling water, Simultaneously, they gauge humidity and follow that source for water, too. So right now, I have a Monstera growing by my fridge, a Monstera deliciosa. And it's aerial roots, the roots that are not rooted in the soil, but can be rooted in the soil. They grow right off, like, the top of the stem. And they started all trailing underneath my refrigerator. All of them are going underneath my refrigerator for no good reason except for that it's probably humid, and they probably like the humming sound. Roots can see, too. They see light. So they know where to point their leaves and their stems, those photosynthesizing limbs, and they know to travel deeper into the earth because that's probably where the water is, but it's also where the light is not, so they can become more grounded into the soil, into the earth. They seek to be grounded, and they point their stems and leaves up to the light. Plants are like upside-down bodies. Their head with all the neurons or brain cells in the earth, and their limbs, like their arms and their legs, and their reproductive organs are sticking up in the air. Most plants use the soil and the earth as their skull. This also allows each plant body to directly communicate to the next, not just as neighbors, but intertwined and informing them of the world. So there's a massive root network that is all intermingling with each other underground from all the information that they're receiving from above ground. It's like how artificial intelligence combines all the data from the internet to come up with rapid responses to your silly chat GPT questions. So the AI has access to nearly every source of information on the web. This web in the earth is mycelium, which is a literal fungal web of connection beneath the soil that acts like an electric base pad for everything to communicate. 
So you can think of mushrooms as just the fruiting bodies and the mycelium like that brain, the kind of like roots of plants, but more like the motherboard or base connection for all the roots to derive from. Mycelium can grow miles long and it connects every living thing planted in the earth. Think about how your brain is working all the time, documenting everything around you instantaneously. So when a natural disaster such as an earthquake occurs on one side of the world, the plants instantaneously signal their experience to each other through their roots, where their signal charges are picked up through a web of mycelium and then it travels across the world. And the plants and fungus on the other side of the world know of the destruction occurring thousands of miles away, and then they begin to put up defenses for whatever the aftermath could be on their side of the world. Basically, the planet Earth is a giant functioning brain with the helps of plants and fungi and all the organisms that clean up and nourish and balance their growth under a very complex natural system of control that has been going on for millions of years. And somehow, human beings, even though having evolved through millions of years and getting to know plants, and then understanding most of it in a very complex way through science and with folklore, we still lack the big picture. We still don't understand how to function naturally in this world without giving up complete safety and giving up the illusion of our own control and human species hierarchy. Somehow, we became aliens on our own planet. We refuse to acknowledge the truth. We are animals. We are animals. We're animals, and that's all it comes down to. Yeah, we are a special species, but just like back in elementary school, we learned that everyone is special and that no one is special. But what's special, what's really special, is how we can all work together as a team. There's not one of us that can get the job done without help from a friend and without unconditional love in our hearts and the want for things to be better and for things to get better. Adults need reminding of this as we get older, and so do kids, but adults especially start to lose sight of how we work together in this massive environment. So we must take care of every body and every body part on this earth. That includes reproductive organs, no more shame about that. It's nonsense. People are out here terrified of what's down there, terrified of the life it may bring, terrified of our shapes and our colors and our textures and our smells, our animal bodies. The most animal-looking part of our animal bodies. Terrified of talking about how to care for ourselves and others, how to respect and find beauty in our differences. Calling our private parts different names, especially in front of children, means they're more easily targets of sexual abuse because we don't take them seriously. We don't care to say their name. The point is, these horrible issues may be addressed more quickly and with more seriousness if everyone 
can describe their pressing issues without code words blocking the way and diluting the urgency. But for some reason, we fear these parts of ourselves. They're too sensitive. They're foreign. They're illegal. We cut them off of our dogs and cats, but then keep them on the cute ones we like to force in a cage to breed because we need this control over life. It's scary to not see yourself as a whole person to point out certain parts of people's bodies instead of unapologetically loving and accepting every single part that works together to make you work, make you function every day, you know, to make you feel things every day. Picking and choosing the parts of yourself or the parts of other people that you like and that you're going to support and nurture doesn't do anything for them because you need to support the whole. You need to support the whole in yourself, every single part of yourself, in order for you to move forward, to thrive, to support new life, to imagine a new future. You are a functioning organism made up of many different parts and every single part of you deserves love. And part of that is that need for control, that need to control what lives and what doesn't, the need to control what is taming, you know, taming my hair instead of embracing its natural texture. It's not always going to be good for my hair. My hair is going to start hating me. I'm going to need a haircut a lot sooner if I don't just let it do its natural thing. I wouldn't just give a plant to somebody who's not ready or willing or capable of caring for it. I'm not going to give a plant who just wants something pretty to put in their dark living room where it's not going to live any more than a few weeks. I wouldn't do that because I'm not going to just take a life and put it somewhere that withers it and dehydrates and suffocates its body. There's a symbiotic relationship going on here too that we share with plants and every other living organism. And it only works if humans and those other organisms such as plants both have healthy roots and nourishing environments. Otherwise, both of us will be contorting ourselves towards the nearest window but never reaching it losing leaves and hair and letting limbs go to mush when they're no longer being activated. We cannot keep giving life in these circumstances. You cannot yield fruit from a plant that never flowers. Flowers are the reproductive organs of plants. These reproductive organs are not treated the same way we treat our own reproductive organs. Flowers are celebrated. They're cherished. They're made into extravagant centerpieces. As we evolve over time in a terrifying world to make our environments safer and cleaner and more predictable, we've only taken with us the natural things that bring life, pleasure, and food. Life, pleasure, and food. They're basically the same thing. Our eyesight evolved to see fruiting and flowering bodies, and due to plants inhabiting the land as one large brain, I believe they began to evolve to attract insects and birds that help travel them further and reproduce more quickly. I mean, plants started to become different plants, and then this genetic variation allowed for a healthier, more diverse Earth. A 
smart earth brain we live on. Some flowers, such as orchids, mimic bee reproductive organs to try to trick them into rubbing their parts on them and then spreading the plant's seed. Obviously, a bee and a plant cannot make a new organism, but that plant has somehow, with all of its incredible earth brain knowledge, has figured out what a bee looks like, what bee reproductive parts look like, and then trick a bee into rubbing its parts on the flower. And that helps the flower reproduce. And there's another flower that looks exactly like the shape of a flying hummingbird. And they make their nectar sweeter for those hummingbirds. And those flowers are able to reproduce through hummingbirds. Big surprise. Everyone's happy though. No one feels too violated. Nobody's mad at the flowers for being like tricksters and tricking them into picking them and spreading their seed. Plants know that animals love them anyways. Flowers are sexy. Flowers dominate Valentine's Day. Smart plants, smart earth brain, and humans are obviously no exception. Flowers smell incredible. Some flowers and fruit look like our reproductive organs, and we sniff and eat them. I'm very sorry, Grandma and Grandpa, if you're listening to this, but I'm just telling the truth. Plants draw out our animal instincts, and sex cells, and plants know this. They intelligently, though, draw out the pleasure-seeking kind of instincts. Like I said, the human brain is extremely effective at remembering trauma and fearful events. And that's so, you know, we don't make the same mistakes, we don't get ourselves in danger, and that we protect ourselves and our kin. But flowers remind us of everything desirable and good and life-giving. To live is to feel. And flowers give us just that. From their perfume to beautiful colors, shapes, and textures, the transformation into something we can taste. In a field of flowers, you might hear the buzz of bees. Even plants give off frequencies that make the air feel awake and alive. And at night, the leaves breathe. And the sun warms up each petal to release their aroma so that we can have a full breath of fresh, sweet air in the morning. Yes, flowers are sexy, but that's nature's way of encouraging us to create more life, and not just baby making, but to bring art to life, to remind people why we are alive and why we should honor our life and how sensation drives our life, and that might not be a bad thing. Because it's not just about sex. No one needs to demonize or condemn the flowers for being gorgeous. It's about promoting health and well-being and the very reasons, the very beautiful reasons that we keep going. And for that, flowers deserve our worship and our gratitude. And what else are you doing besides worshiping when an object is a centerpiece to stare at and admire? bouquets you guys bouquets of flowers we grow flowers in our gardens not just for beauty not just to surround ourselves with beauty but flowers make our neighborhoods safer nature makes our neighborhoods safer because it makes us feel calmer 
and any passerbys in our neighborhood are going to feel calm and content instead of wanting to cause destruction or steal from us. So it's almost like flowers can be a sort of, you know, they're not going to be like a guard dog, but they're going to cast a spell on people. They really do. And a tip if you'd like to make your bouquet last a while, cut each stem diagonally so that they can suck up the most water for the longest time, and then you're going to want to change their water frequently. And putting a little vodka in the water will preserve them for longer, but I would probably Google how much vodka and how much water, like what is that ratio before you drown your flowers in vodka. But flowers teach us a valuable lesson about life, not just life giving, but the circle of life. Flowers don't last very long. They allow us to cut them. The flowers wilt and die after a certain period of time, whether or not they're attached to the earth. They gladly survive as a centerpiece for us to cherish, like capturing them in a picture. And in turn, we eternalize them and remember to keep breeding them. Flowers dying just show us that beauty does fade, but that if we keep encouraging growing this beauty, more and more will come. We all have our favorite flowers. The most popular and successful are mass-produced for grocery stores on Valentine's Day. So many roses. And these gorgeous reproductive plant organs that we give our loved ones remind our loved ones that they're loved for giving us experiences that enhance our life and life-giving abilities, for making our pelvic floors relax enough to not reject the possibility of creating a life, even if you don't wish to create a life in the moment, for giving someone the safety and comfort they deserve, and relishing the parts of nature that don't bring us fear and death. Flowers remind us of this. You may associate a certain plant or flower with a certain person. Um, I know my mom and I definitely associate my maternal grandmother with oak. I know that's not a flower, but she loves oak trees and has many in her backyard. But also because she has given life to our entire family. And oaks have been sacred for thousands of years because they're considered the source of all life in their area. They give food and shelter to every animal in the vicinity. They produce an abundance of seeds for more food and shelter, antidote or as a diuretic, and the leaves for healing wounds faster on a battlefield, but also the bark's antiseptic properties in curing toothaches, and sometimes as a substitute for quinine in treating fevers. Oaks promote life in everything they produce. But back to flowers specifically, meaning is given to flowering bodies too. With making bouquets, we combine significance from each flower. Humans have been combining herbs, flowers, and leaves for ceremonies and simply just decoration since antiquity. Sometimes the color of a flower changes the entire meaning of a flower. For instance, a white rose symbolizes sexual purity and innocence compared to a red rose for desire and passion. I always like to bring it to the place of periods because I am a woman with a period. I like to think of a period when it comes to these roses and 
how it changes for more of a desire because um, a period means that you're fertile. So whenever something's red, it usually means death and blood and fertility because it's the circle of life, baby. Outside of a romantic context, the white rose symbolizes eternal love and new beginnings, making them suitable for weddings, but also for funerals. And a red rose might also symbolize beauty, luck, victory, or martyrdom. In the Victorian era, floriography, or the language of flowers, emerged as a way to send secret messages. Bouquet making was a form of coding. So I got this book called Floriography by Jessica Rue with beautiful paintings of each flower and their associated meetings. I have been using it to paint personalized watercolor bouquets for my friends and family. And like I said, if you email me with valuable feedback and an address, I'd be happy to send an exclusive to Lintail's watercolor bouquet to lintails at gmail.com. In the Victorian era, the language of flowers became very popular in England and in America because for a while, kings and queens were sending appointed people to go travel the world and explore the biodiversity and whatever was out there, which brought a lot of disease to indigenous people. And also, you know, we were picking up plants and animals and putting them on boats. And many of these different animals would not survive overseas. But then the ones that did, the ones that were brought back to England or America, were highly treasured. Orchids were huge during this time, but in general, people started gardening because after, you know, a hundred years or so, the common people, who were still pretty wealthy, were able to grow these extravagant gardens. So that's when people started having these garden parties to show off how they designed their garden, the new species that they acquired from whatever overseas venture that they went on, and to show off like their terrariums on the inside of their house. So just like today, we have all of these new plant moms and plant dads that were so passionate about their gardens and their indoor plants, and they would host entire parties to just show off what they had and they would start to learn how to breed their plants, especially with the orchids, like I said. So people started to pick their flowers and send them to their friends as a way to not only say, hey, look at all my beautiful flowers, but my flowers have meaning because flowers have had meaning since we started growing flowers and started noticing flowers. Since forever, flowers have carried meaning with them and significance a lot of the meaning of flowers that we have today, we don't really trace back to much besides folk tales. So a lot of the sources that I have for the meaning of these flowers are from my book, Floriography by Jessica Rue. And I have tried to fact check a lot of her meanings of these flowers. And there are just naturally going to be inconsistencies. One, because flowers mean different things for every culture around the world. And especially when we have gathered all of our plants from different areas of the world by now, we kind of lose their indigenous meaning and we've come up with new meanings. 
One classic flower, the daffodil, something a lot of us, especially if you are here in the Midwest, and I think most everywhere, daffodils can grow pretty easily except for the desert. Daffodils are called Narcissus because they're based off of the Greek myth of Narcissus, who was a handsome hunter who falls in love with himself upon seeing his reflection in a spring. And he dies there, looking at his reflection. And as he dies, he turns into a daffodil. And daffodils' heads kind of bow down as if they were able to look at their reflection if they were next to water. So if you pair a daffodil with, say, a clover for good luck, you might be sending somebody else a message that there is hope for change. That, oh, because a daffodil is an unrequited love, if you pair an unrequited love meaning with luck, you hope that they'll have some good luck to find somebody <laughs> that actually cares for them. I kind of love how it's a double-edged sword, a lot of these bouquets. Something that you don't really have the heart to say in words, but you have this way of coding what you mean through a beautiful gift of flowers. If you pair a daffodil with a sweet pea, which was used to thank a host for a lovely time, your bouquet sends the message of giving up on an ill-suited romance. Remember the daffodil is an unrequited love, but a sweet pea is thanking somebody for a good time. And so you're kind of saying goodbye for the fun, but I'm going to go find someone that actually <laughs> loves me. Another bouquet that I really like is for bitter ends. So you can gift this bouquet to somebody who you left a relationship on a bad note. And it's kind of like you're the bigger person for giving them flowers, but they might not know the secret message of all of these flowers. And it's petunias representing anger and resentment, datura for deceitful charms, tansy for hostility, thistle for misanthropy, and wormwood for bitterness. So you can either give that to the person that you left a bad note off of with the relationship, or you can make it for yourself, and it can be something beautiful, but remind you where you stand at the same time. So um, I just wanted to break down a couple of these flowers for you because I think it's really interesting. In terms of petunias representing anger and resentment, you look at a flower and you're like, how is that anger and resentment? But the speculation is that because they are so easily damaged, somebody who is very angry and resentful is going to be easily damaged. So it's a little bit of a reminder, if you make the bouquet for yourself, to treat yourself very kindly during that time, too. But a datura, deceitful charms, a datura is known as the devil's trumpets, hell's bells, and the moonflower. And that's because they're poisonous and hallucinogenic. But why the devil's trumpets? Why hell's bells? Not only because it might cause you some you know, very painful side effects and even death. But people figured out how to bypass these bad side effects and get the primarily hallucinogenic effects to come out by making it into an ointment. So in the Middle Ages, reports of this ointment kept coming up. 
because people would make this ointment from the datura, the devil's trumpets or moonflower or hell's bells, and then absorb it through their armpits or the mucous membranes of their vaginal or rectal area. So according to an investigation in 1324 of the case of Lady Alice Keitler, it quotes, In rifling the closet of the lady, they found a pipe of ointment wherewith she greased a staff upon which she ambled and galloped through thick and thin. And then another quote from the 15th century record states, But the vulgar believe, and the witches confess, that on certain days or nights they anoint a staff and ride on it to the appointed place, or anoint themselves under the arms and in other hairy places. So basically, these people would take this ointment and they would put it on a broomstick or a staff that they probably used to stir the ointment, and then they'd ride it around, bare naked, and then they'd start to hallucinate, and the side effects were starting to feel your feet become very light and off the ground. People would often fall asleep upon taking this drug and dream of themselves dancing in a frenzy and flying around. So that's where witches on a broomstick flying in the air came about was because of this flower. But I don't recommend trying this at home, definitely don't because we don't know enough about flowers or plants in this age and I don't want anybody getting hurt. It's a stupid idea. Just don't put ointment on a broomstick and ride it bare naked. That's also just stupid. You're gonna get splinters in your precious area. But there's this resurgence of houseplants and people wanting to care for things and watch things grow and watch things live and watch things bloom inside of our homes. And I think that is so precious. I love the communities that it has formed already. There are so many plant groups on Facebook. There are so many plant pages on social media everywhere. An appreciation for the art and science of of growing all of these different species and environments that these plants should not be able to naturally grow in but we make it habitable for them and if we all can learn how to grow some plants or how to grow a garden especially outside shows how we should care for ourselves it can awaken all of our senses it shows beauty with everything and i'm not just talking about growing flowers that you find at the store and you plant them in your garden see what naturally pops up in some fertile soil that you put down. Look at the flowers that come out of your weeds. See if you can somehow highlight those in some way because they're growing there for a reason. They're growing there for a reason and you can't just pick and choose everything that you want to grow. You need to let some things grow naturally too. That will benefit your garden that will benefit everything in the environment just make sure that it's not invasive (laughs) because it will take over it will absolutely wreak havoc so you don't want any of those extra smart little plants taking over either you want to foster and curate a balanced environment that's what you're there for that's like you're that's how you can have the control and be head honcho is that everything 
should have some kind of balance. I think that if everybody figured out how to grow their own garden and show off the, the species and the parts of gardens that they enjoy, then we can have not only these beautiful and safe neighborhoods everywhere that we go and get people walking outside and talking outside again, we can start to learn about what our plants mean to us and we can start to communicate with them again and start to feel like we're part of this world. Yeah, figure out how to grow a plant or figure out how to how to paint a plant or figure out what you like about a certain plant. Maybe if you already like plants, maybe go out and look for a little weed that you are annoyed with and figure out what you enjoy about that little weed that you hated previously. But remember that you are ultimately not in control. The big earth brain is. And you need to nourish the big earth brain. So do something life-giving today. Appreciate and honor things that bring you to life. And that should be enough of a place to start. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Have a beautiful rest of your January. I will talk to you next month.